You are listening to Danvers Audio, a podcast by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I'm Colin Smothers, your host and executive director of CBMW. Heralded by The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual, Nancy Piercy is professor of apologetics and scholar-in-residence at Houston Baptist University. She's also a fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture and editor-at-large of the Piercy Report. Formerly an agnostic, Professor Piercy studied in Heidelberg, Germany in the early 1970s and in Switzerland at Labrie Fellowship under Francis Schaeffer. She earned a BA from Iowa State University, an MA from Covenant Theological Seminary, and pursued graduate work in history of philosophy at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. Professor Piercy is the author of several books, including Total Truth, Liberating Christianity from Its Cultural Captivity, which won a 2005 ECPA Gold Medallion Award. Her latest book, published at the beginning of this year and the topic of today's podcast, is Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions on Life and Sexuality. Professor Piercy, welcome to Danvers Audio. Professor Piercy, in your new book, Love Thy Body, which I just have to say at the outset is one of the most philosophically rooted and, and well-argued, uh, yet eminently practical books I've, I've read in some time, not to mention just how timely it is. In that book, you make the argument that some of the most significant watershed issues of our day, abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, transgenderism, that, that all of these share a fundamental error as a common denominator. What, what's that error? Right. In Love Thy Body, what I tried to do is, was cut through the politically correct slogans and help people step back and understand the underlying worldview that is driving all of these issues. And I show that it's, a, um, it's a, what we might call secular liberalism. And I show that it's a deeply dehumanizing ethos that undermines human dignity and that destroys human rights. In a sense, I'm turning the tables. You know, the, the typical stereotype is that it's Christians who are uh, hateful and bigoted, and uh, it's, we, we face these negative stereotypes all the time. And what I do is I turn the tables and show, no, actually, it's a secular liberal view that undermines human dignity, and that has a very low view of what it means to be human. Right, and uh, the controlling metaphor uh, it seems that you're putting forward is this two-story building or this two-story division between um, at root body uh, and soul or or person. Um, can you unpack where that came from? Uh, wh- how that kind of undergirds the project, and even uh, we find that even in philosophical history and 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 the ways that culture has handled these questions before. Yeah, it's easier, I have found, if we just jump straight in with an example. So let's, let's take abortion. Today, most professional bioethicists will agree that life begins at conception. You know, ordinary people don't always know that, but professional bioethicists say that the evidence from science, from DNA and genetics, is just too strong to deny it. But their attitude is summed up by a recent article that was titled, so what if abortion ends life? So what, what these bioethicists, bioethicists are saying is that human, being human is not enough to qualify for legal protection. The fetus has to earn the right to life by becoming a person, 
quote unquote, which is defined in terms of mental, mental abilities. So a certain level of self-awareness, cognitive functioning, and so on. But you notice what the implication here is, is that as long as the fetus is merely biologically human, it is seen as a disposable piece of matter. It can be killed for any reason or no reason. It can be used for research and experiments. It can be tinkered with genetically, picked through for sellable body parts like Planned Parenthood does, and then tossed out with the other medical waste. In other words, being human is no longer enough for human rights. And this is that two-story division that you mentioned in your question. What they're saying is that as long as you're merely human, biologically, genetically, physiologically human, you have no rights. You're just a piece of matter, essentially, according to a materialist philosophy. And you have no rights until you become a person. So it's a very fragmented understanding of what it means to be a person, a, a human being. And that's, uh, that's the underlying worldview that informs all of these issues in our day, is this fragmented view of the human, human person that says you can be a body or a, a uh, you know, biologically human, but you are not a person. This mm -hmm. distinction is what underlies all of these issues. Professor Piercy, I don't think I realized what I was holding in my hand when I picked up your book uh, initially, I kind of stumbled across it. And as I went through the introduction and then really in the, the first chapter, uh, chapter one titled, I Hate Me, uh, was when I first realized um, the ambitious nature of, of this project, to be able to say that that two-story division, uh, the, the person body or the soul body uh, distinction division, that that lies at the root of, of all of these watershed issues, not only like you mentioned just now about abortion, uh, but also euthanasia and even homosexuality and transgenderism. And, and at first I was skeptical, I have to confess, uh, but then I got to the end and I, and I couldn't uh, help but just note and, and, uh, and realize how absolutely correct you, you were in that assessment. And I guess my question is, at what point did you realize what you were sitting on? At what point did it dawn on you that this, uh, this sort of uh, distinction, this division between body and soul, really, truly does lie uh, near the very heart of the of the fundamental error of these of these problems. Well, I was working with Francis Schaeffer's division, um, which you may be familiar with. You know, he had talked about how all of modern thought is divided into into two into two main streams, um, and he used the imagery of two stories in a building. So we have the whole enlightenment stream of thought that says science is what's ultimately true. And that tends, that's the lower story where people say, you know, what we know scientifically is objective and true and verifiable. And that's, that's the only form of reliable knowledge. And then we have the kind of postmodern upper story that says, well, wait a minute, there's no place for values and meaning and purpose and free will and all of these things that make life worth living. And they have become sort of an upper story where people no longer think you have objective truth or knowledge. Um, you have merely personal opinions, personal experience. So I had, I had written about that in my earlier book, Total Truth and, um, and Finding Truth. Those, well, and Saving Leonardo. It's been a thread through all of my books to, to, to plumb more deeply. And what, what does this mean, this divided 
concept of truth that informs the, the modern mind. And then when I started, it was actually Catholic theologians who first noted that in the life issues, you have the same division. And so they were writing about it in terms of abortion and euthanasia. So euthanasia is, is also driven by the same divide because it says if you're mentally disabled, if you lose a certain level of cortical functioning, functioning um, then you are no longer a person, even though you're obviously still human. And at that point, many bioethicists say you are only a body. That's exactly the phrase they use. You're only a body. And you can be unplugged, your treatment withheld, your food and water discontinued, your organs harvested. So again, being human is not enough for quali to qualify for human rights. And once I saw it in the area of the life issues, abortion and euthanasia, then I started seeing it in the sexuality issues, in, in the hookup culture, homosexuality, and transgenderism. And, and that's a connection, frankly, that I hadn't seen before and what, what was so uh, enlightening for me. And especially um, the work that I do here at CBMW um, with homosexuality and transgenderism, to see that connection uh, to the errors that are at root in, in abortion and euthanasia um, it was it was eye opening, uh, but you mentioned the the Catholic theologians and and how it seems like they always beat us uh, there, <laughs> us being Protestants, um, and it reminds me of when you're discussing the role that um, natural theology, natural law, and even um, teleology uh, in Christian ethics and in Christian theology, and you you point uh, first of all uh, in one chapter to to Charles Darwin and um, the breakdown that happens there when, when you accept the premises of um, purely materialistic and evolutionary worldview, uh, then you're basically rejecting any sort of a purpose that, that could be said to be imbued in creation. Uh, no creator, therefore no purpose of the, of the creator. Um, can you help us to, to understand that a little bit more? Can you unpack that a little bit further? Yeah, let me start by showing how, how uh, homosexuality does, in fact, have a low view of the body, how it, how it ties in also to this body-person dualism. So no one really denies that on the level of biology, physiology, anatomy, chromosomes, that males and females are counterparts to one another. That's how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. So to embrace a same-sex identity is implicitly to contradict that design. It's to say, why should my body inform my identity? And why should my biological sex have any say in my moral, choice, moral choices? This is a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. And then you ask, where does such a low view of the body come from? And that's where you go further and say, well, your view of the body always comes from your view of nature, because our bodies are part of nature. And the liberal secular ethic derives from the theory that nature is a product of mindless, purposeless forces, and therefore the body has no intrinsic purpose that we're morally, morally obligated to respect. And the mind is free to use it any way it wants. And that's exactly how homosexuality is defended by the outspoken lesbian Camille Paglia, who I'm sure you know, mm -hmm. 
she says, um, in one of her essays, she says, she acknowledges that nature made us male and female. It's not a social construction. Nature made us male and female. Humans are a sexually reproducing species. And then she asks, and these are her words, she says, why not defy nature? After all, fate, not God, has given us, given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. Hmm. So what she's saying is if our bodies are products of blind material forces, then they give no clue to our identity. They have no intrinsic purpose that we need to respect. We may do with them as we see fit. And so that's where the Christian answer has to start with what you call the teleology, namely that nature itself exhibits a design, a plan, an order, a purpose. And when we live in harmony with that purpose, we are healthier and happier. And I have lots of stories in Love Thy Body as well. And to illustrate this one, um, my, my favorite story is Jean, a young woman named Jean, who had lived as a lesbian for several years and now is married to a man and has two children. And this, this is a wonderful quote. She says, I finally came to trust that God had made me female for a reason, and I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the Creator's design. So there's the teleology, living in accord with the Creator's design, honoring our body, not defying nature, but letting nature speak to us as God's handiwork, as something that's intrinsically good that we should take account of and should live in harmony in when we, when we um, think through our sexual identity. Yeah, I, I love that story that you mentioned there. I, when I was thinking about this, um, I thought of a subtitle for your book, uh, Love Thy Body, um, subtitle, By Learning From Your Body. And especially in, in these in these areas of homosexuality and, and transgenderism where uh, the secular argument goes, and even the secular argument creeping into the Christian church goes, um, you know, how I feel is, is who I am, um, not how I feel is simply how I feel, uh, but, but it really is, uh, goes to the root of, of the identity question. And I want to uh, read a quote to you um, from, from your book in, on page 30. Uh, you write here, quote, the person who adopts a same-sex identity must disassociate their sexual feelings from their bio biological identity as male or female, implicitly accepting a two-story dualism that demeans the human body. Thus, it has a fragmenting, self-alienating effect on the human personality. And I, I uh, had a question when I was reading that, and especially your section on, on homosexuality, I'm sure you're aware uh, that there's kind of an intramural debate going on um, among those Christians who are, who are even accepting of um, of the traditional biblical view that marriage is designed by God to be between a male and a female. Um, but but what are what are people who uh, experience same-sex attraction? Um, how are they to perceive themselves, and how are they to? identify and I and I just was wondering especially with a quote like that and then uh, even the the examples that you cite later in your chapter on homosexuality uh, were you intending to weigh in on, on that debate well I have I kind of did but in but indirectly in other words I, I did it through some some of the stories 
for example, um, there was a, I met someone who was a former homosexual once, and he said, um, you know, the, many people, many Christians will sometimes say, God made me gay, or God made some people gay. And this former homosexual had a really good answer to that. He said, in that case, God has played a cruel joke on them. He's engineered their minds and emotions for attraction to the same sex, and yet created their physiology to be in direct opposition to that attraction. In other words, to say that assumes the two-story divide, assumes that your, your, you know, your physiology can be in contradiction to your biology. And I think the answer to that is, well, let me just jump into another story. The opening story in the chapter on homosexuality is uh, about a young man named Sean, who, growing up, identified as gay. And, uh, was, by the way, he was in a gay-affirming church, so he had no problem with it. He did not see a theological issue with it. His parents accepted him. His church accepted him. So, uh, but now he's married to a woman and has three kids. So what changed? Sean said, I stopped defining my identity by my sexual feelings and started to regard my physical body as who I was. In other words, his goal was not to try to change his feelings directly, which rarely works. He said, my goal was to acknowledge what I already had, which was a male body, as a good gift from God. And eventually, he says, my feelings started to follow suit. And so that's really the question at the core of this debate. Do we live in a cosmos operating by blind material causes or a cosmos created by a loving creator, which is therefore intrinsically good? And so many of the stories that I, that I found when I was writing the book, and there, there are a lot of them um, in the book, just so that people know it's not just a book on, on uh, theological ethics. It has lots and lots of personal stories. Um, almost invariably, the turning point came when they said, biologically, I'm male, biologically, I'm female, and I will want to live in harmony, in tune, in accord with the way God made me. And I will trust that I will ultimately be more fulfilled living the way God made me. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And I just want to echo uh, what you said about the stories. It, it really is the stories that, that make the book, I believe. Um, you have the philosophical uh, chops, I think, um, to, to go deep in the history of philosophy and, and show how those things kind of inter- underpin uh, what we're seeing materialized today in our secular culture. But then again, uh, you're able to cite uh, so many, uh, even just pop culture references. I mean, Miley Cyrus uh, makes a debut in, in the pages here. Uh, you're, you're so well-voiced and, and well-versed even um, in in uh, the here and now, in what's going on today. And, and I just felt like um, I, I greatly benefited from from all of these uh, anecdotes and stories, um, and, and even cultural references. Uh, I'm I'm going to certainly be using some of them in in upcoming uh, opportunities to teach on these things for sure. Well, let's make, make uh, let's make sure we cover transgenderism because that is the certainly the current biggest issue, and it and it is even easier to see the body-person dualism there, because activists argue explicitly that gender has nothing to do with biological sex. 
there was a D, uh, BBC documentary on the subject that said at the heart of the debate is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body. And in that war, it's the mind that wins. And as a result, kids down to kindergarten today are being told that their body tells them nothing about who they are. It's not part of their authentic self. And I think the, the response the Christian should have is, why accept such an extreme devaluation of the body? Hmm. After I had already written the book, um, I read an article, which was, it was an interview with a 14-year-old girl who had lived as a trans boy for three years from age 11 and then reclaimed her identity as a girl. And she said, the turning point came when I realized, and this, this is a quote, it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. So it would have been a great quote if I'd found in time for a book called wow. Love Thy Body. Wow. Now that's, that's great. And, and as you mentioned, I mean, the, the two-story metaphor that you employ here um, is most apparent and most obvious in the transgender era that's currently proliferating. Um, and it was by the time I got there, I was I was already sold on on the two story metaphor and and even the explanatory power. But before we got there, you you went through even the hookup culture, how how we have um, how our culture has disassociated um, who we are, our personhood, and um, and our bodies, such that we can do things uh, with our bodies that supposedly have no effect um, on on the soul, on the person. And and what havoc that's wreaked across uh, high schools and, and college campuses on young men and young women who who uh, who are taught this um, theory, but but are, it just definitely does not hold true in practice. Right, young people know the rules of the hookup culture very well, even if they don't particularly like them. In private, they may admit they don't like them, but but the, they know what it means is. No love, no relationship, no commitment. I quote a young woman named Amanda who says, you learn to turn everything off except your body and make yourself emotionally invulnerable. So there, there it is. You have to divide yourself. You can, you can connect with somebody purely on the body, on the physical level, and not on the personal level. And some people, you know, critics of the hookup culture will sometimes say, well, that, you know, it gives sex too much importance. But in reality, we have to help them see it gives sex too little importance. I had a quote um, from a young man. He was a drummer in Austin, Texas, and he was quoted in Rolling Stone magazine. And he said, sex is just a piece of body touching another piece of body. It is existentially meaningless. And so the hookup culture, again, it's resting on a materialist view of the human being as a physical organism driven by sheer physical drives with no higher purpose. And no wonder it's leaving a trail of wounded people. They're trying to live out a worldview that does not fit who they really are. There's a researcher named Donna Freitas who interviewed hundreds of college students, wrote a really good book on it, and she found that privately they would admit that they're very disappointed in these meaningless sexual encounters, that they feel hurt and lonely, that they really want to know how to create a relationship where they're known and loved for who they are. And so there's a hunger out there that only the Christian worldview can, can actually meet. Well, in the book, you, you even quote um, 
a professor who talks about uh, it's it's not a coincidence that the most prescribed um, pharmaceuticals on on college campuses are birth control and then antidepressants. Exactly. I thought that was a great quote. That's uh, a Catholic, by the way. She's a Catholic uh, professor, and what it means is um, people are hungry for the Christian message. And but let me tell you, a lot of Christians have lost the message. Here's where we need to address the church as well. Um, one of my students put it this way. She said, growing up in the church, I was always taught, spirit good, body bad. And when I give her a quote, in, and when I speak publicly on it, the whole room nods. You know, yep, yep, that's the image. That's the, the basic concept we got growing up in the church. And what we have to help people to see is that Christians have lost touch with their own heritage. The early church was born into a culture that also devalued the material world, the body, like modern secularism does, but for different reasons, right? The early church faced philosophies like Platonism and Gnosticism that treated this world as the realm of evil and corruption. Um, They talked about the body as the prison house of the soul, and the goal of salvation was to escape the material world. In fact, Gnosticism even taught that the world was a creation of a low-level deity, an evil god. After all, no self-respecting god would demean himself mucking about with matter. And so in this historical context, Christianity was nothing short of revolutionary, because it taught that the universe was created by a, the supreme god, a good god, and therefore it is intrinsically good. And Christianity's greatest scandal at the time was the claim that that same supreme deity had entered into the realm of matter, taking on a human body. So the incarnation is the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the body. And when Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, we might say he did escape the physical realm, as Gnosticism taught we should aspire to do. But what did he do then? He came back in a physical body. To the Greeks, this was not spiritual progress. This was regress. Who would want to come back to the body? It was utter foolishness to the Greeks, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And then finally, at the end of time, what is God going to do? He's not going to scrap the material universe as though he made a mistake the first time around. He's going to restore it and renew it and create a new heavens and a new earth. So the Apostles' Creed affirms the resurrection of the body. This is an astonishingly high view of the physical world. There's nothing like it in any other philosophy or religion. And this is what we need to recover as Christians when we teach our own people and when we reach out to non-Christians. We can reach out with a positive message that says we, we actually, surprisingly to many people, Christianity actually affirms the, the in, intrinsic goodness of the body and the material world in a way that no other philosophy does. I think you're exactly right there. Um, growing up, I I would say that I think this was the default position, even in the, the church that I grew up in, um, this kind of incipient Gnosticism. They wouldn't have called, called it such. They wouldn't even know what that would, uh, what that would entail or, or mean. But uh, this idea that, yeah, the, the body, the material, uh, bad, the thing that we're trying to escape, um, you know, the soul and heaven, and even in, in the way we speak um, about our eschatology, about what's to come, um, we want to go to heaven and, and not 
uh, embracing and even understanding the the true biblical picture about what you just spoke of, uh, God's recreation of the heavens and the earth, um, a, a, a hope of an embodied existence um, in the new age. And then uh, in the New Testament letters, uh, it, it shows up, this error. Uh, the early church uh, from the get-go was, was battling this Gnostic error. And then here we are uh, in the secular age that we're, we find ourselves uh, we've, we've, as it were, fallen off on the other side of the horse. Uh, all that is is what we can see, the material, and a, almost a wholesale denial um, of those things that are, that are spiritual. And uh, you're exactly right to say that this is, the, this is what the church need, needs to recover. And, and at the heart of this, um, a recovery of a truly biblical anthropology, uh, the psychosomatic unity uh, that everywhere is attested in the Scriptures and, and, and it's only that that's going to be able to battle not only transgenderism um, today, homosexuality today, uh, the error of, of affirmation of same-sex marriage, but even in the future, um, we can think of, as you mentioned in your book, uh, what's going to be coming down the pike with, with transhumanism um, and all the manner of, um, of scientific innovation that, that we don't even know about yet. Um, but I think you're exactly right to, to point to this as being a fundamental truth that the Church has got to recover. Yeah, and I think um, most of us have been so busy battling modernism, materialism, empiricism, the isms that say that the only thing that's real is the material world. We have not been aware as much of the postmodern challenge. Postmodernism is what reigns in the ethical issues which are the ones we've been talking about. And in postmodernism, it says, okay, fine, the, the body's just a hunk of matter. The body's just a, a biochemical machine. What matters is the person, your feelings, your sense of self, the mind, mental capacities. So in abortion and euthanasia, what makes you a person are mental capacities. You know, the body means nothing. As long as you, if you don't have fully developed mental capacities, you know, you can be aborted or you can be unplugged. Or homosexuality and transgenderism. You're, what gives you your identity is not your body. After all, it's just an evolved organism. It has no value or dignity. What matters is your mind, your feelings, your sense of self, your self-identity. So we have, we have to realize that these issues are actually, it's postmodernism that's driving them. Hmm. And that they have actually denigrated, they've taken the modernist denigration of the body and said, okay, fine, what counts is your mind. And so, ironically, it's Christians now who are in the position of saying, no, no, we value the body as the whole person. Uh, we, we almost have to go the other direction and say, it's Christians now who are saying the body is not just a biochemical machine. The, the body is part of your full identity and needs to be taken account of when we look at what it means to have human dignity. That's exactly right. And, and I think that uh, the church needs to realize just how far-reaching, um, even in our, in our own uh, circles, in our own families, uh, these errors are going to persist and, and will continue to, to push into if, if we don't get a handle on these. I, I was um, just flipping through before this interview and reminded of of your um, discussion of even the loss of um, of parental rights, if if we're going to accept the disconnect between between gender and sex and 
um, and this kind of revisionist understanding of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. Uh, the next step is uh, a reinterpretation of fatherhood and, and motherhood. I'm a father of, of four children, and your discussion there was, um, it, was a, it was an alarm for me. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up, because I think that that is um, one of the most important things that people have not quite grasped yet. It's, it's just too, it's too far-reaching. We haven't really grasped yet. In order to have a free society, you must recognize some rights as pre-political. That is, the state does not create them. The state merely recognizes them. And what we're seeing in all of these issues that we've been talking about is the destruction of pre-political rights, because many of them depend on biology. So if you dismiss biology, you lose those pre-political rights. So let's take abortion. In the past... And the law recognized the right to life as a pre-political right, meaning it's something you have just because you're a member of the human race. The, the law doesn't create it. It just recognizes it. But the only way the state could legalize abortion was to deny that biology has any relevance and to declare that some people who are biologically human are still not legal, legal persons. So the state has essentially claimed authority to decide arbitrarily which humans qualify for the right to life, the fundamental right not to be killed. And we have, you know, the, the Roe v. Wade decision was in 1973 that uh, imposed abortion on the entire nation. And we still haven't quite realized what that means because the state has essentially uh, delegated that right to individual women. But in principle, it's the state that decides now who is a legal person. So if you, you may be human, Colin. You may be human, but that does not give you the right to life. It's only if the state recognizes you as a legal person. Or the same, of course, with euthanasia. Um, or take marriage. In the past, the state recognized marriage as a pre-political right. It's based on the fact that humans are a sexually reproducing species. So the state doesn't invent it. But the only way the law can treat same-sex couples the same as opposite-sex couples is to deny that biology has any relevance and to declare that marriage is just an emotional commitment, which is what the Supreme Court did in its Obergefell decision. But we have lots of different emotional commitments, so the state has claimed the authority to decide which ones qualify as marriage not based on biology, but based on its own legal fiat. And the only way the law can treat a trans woman, that is somebody born male, the same as a biological woman, is to say who cares about biology. Gender is a matter of inner feelings. And that's why the state has begun passing laws telling us who we must call he or she. And in 2017, parenthood was addressed. The uh, Supreme Court ordered all states to begin acknowledging uh, same-sex parents on the birth certificate. And what this means is, in the past, it was, the legal term was presumption of parentage. And that means that the law recognized the woman who gave birth as a parent um, and then her husband as the biological and legal father. And it's true that unrelated, people who are biologically unrelated can uh, adopt a child, but you have to go through a long and complex legal process to attain the status of personhood. 
what same-sex couples wanted was the right to be the right to presumption of parentage, which means they would not have to go through the the legal process of adoption. And that's what Obergefell gave them, and that's what the Supreme Court recognized in 2017, is that they had essentially already given this right by by acknowledging same-sex marriage. They had acknowledged that a same-sex parent can can be acknowledged as a parent without having to legally adopt. So, it's, But what that means is biology no longer matters. The state has assumed the right, the authority, to decide who a child's parents are without regard to biology, but only by its own say-so. So put bluntly, you are your child's parent only by permission of the state. And what the state gives, the state can take away. So I, I agree with you that this is the most, perhaps the most troubling implication of these issues is that legally the state has now stepped up and claimed the right to uh, to redefine all of these areas as state-given rights instead of pre-political rights. Well, and as you point out in your book, this is the, the implication that the people in our pews don't understand. Um, it's, it's the argument that, that people like Ryan Anderson were making ahead of the Burgerfeld decision, but what was winning the day in the hearts and the minds of the American people, and even uh, some of those American people in our, in our churches, uh, was that the right to marriage uh, was a fundamental right, regardless of, of the appeal to nature, regardless of the appeal to biology, and, and then ultimately to, to God's revelation in the scriptures. And uh, yeah, at least for a time, uh, we lost that debate. Well, it, it was interesting because the lawyer who was um, defending uh, the the law that um, you know, only that marriage is male and female. The lawyer who was defending it said, "Look, this is based on biology, right? Because when a man and a woman have sex, they can produce children." And Justice Kennedy said, "What?" As if, as though he'd never even heard of that argument. It was amazing. He brushed it off and said, "No, no, no. Marriage is about protecting the personhood." of same-sex couples. So there was that personhood tie-in again. Biology doesn't matter. What matters is personhood. So even there, the body-person dualism was was evident and is what's shaping our laws and shaping people's understanding of these issues. Professor Piercy, I think what you've given us in Love Thy Body is a gift, uh, a gift to the church, uh, and then hopefully, ultimately, um, a gift to the world uh, through the church. And it's my prayer that uh, many Christians will go and pick this book up and, and read it and read it again and give it to their friends, uh, and and that um, that yeah this this argument will uh, will gain purchase in especially evangelicalism, but but even in Christendom at large. I have to ask you, uh, Professor Piercy, what what's next for you? Um. But let me let me answer one more thing. Um, you mentioned speaking to the world, and I would like to just emphasize one more thing out of Love Thy Body. Um, we are known as Christians; we're known for being negative in our way of approaching the world. You know, it's wrong, it's a sin, it's a mom, it's an abomination. And in Love Thy Body, I equip people with the language to say, "No, the Christian ethic is actually based on on positive, uh, on positive concepts, on honoring our body, respecting our body." Uh, our mind and emotions in tune with our biology. It's again and again. It's um, 
the language I use that I'm modeling in the book is all positive. In fact, with my secular friends, I have found, to my surprise, that the most effective argument is based on environmentalism. Because even secular liberal people know that what we've learned from the environmental movement is you cannot simply do what you want when it comes to the environment. To use Camille Paglia's words, we cannot do as we see fit. Otherwise, we'll end up with uh, environmental disasters and pollution. And and that's what Christians are saying. They're saying in terms of our own behavior, uh, we're we're telling people we should respect our own biological nature, just like we have to respect the structure of nature when we intervene with our technology and our industry. We are saying we want to respect our biological nature when it comes to our own actions. And that, I have, I have found when I talk to secular people, they kind of, they say, oh, I get that. <laughs> I get it. So that was amazing to me when I first started using that argument. Um, they understand respecting nature. And so they understand when we say the reason we're against, say, transgenderism is that we want to respect our biological nature. And then your question about what's next, I've, I've been always... For years, I've wanted to write a book on how to help your kids stay Christian in college, and uh, I think I'm gonna. I think I'm finally gonna write that book next. Well, with uh, as I mentioned, four kids that are uh, currently <laughs> seven and under, I'll, I'll look forward to that project, Professor Piercy. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast, and thank you so much for your time in this book. And uh, I'm looking forward to the next one. Thank you so much. It was good talking with you. Resources like Danvers Audio are made possible by the financial support of our individual and church partners. If you or someone you know has benefited from the ministry of CBMW, please consider becoming a partner today by visiting cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening to Danvers Audio.